Nomine Patri, Fili, Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Continuing reflecting on an introduction to the life of devotion by St. Francis de Sales. The judgments of the children of men, the judgments of the children of men, are rash, because they are not judges of one another. And in judging, they usurp the office of our Lord. They are rash because the chief malice of sin depends on the intention and counsel of the heart, which is a hidden thing of darkness to us. So I think there's at least two thoughts that come to mind in relation to that passage. And the first one is re-emphasizing what he's just said. The chief element in sin is the intention, the willingness, uh, and especially the knowing willingness to do wrong and reject God's will and the law of his church. But ultimately, that is what we are most blind to. We can see people's actions, and in many cases we can kind of see their thoughts and their emotions. But ultimately, we cannot perceive clearly their intentions. Um, and that is the, the main thing that um, determines the moral character of what they do. And so for that reason, we, cannot, we are not in a position to say this person is ultimately a good person. Or this person is ultimately an evil person. This person is ultimately um, going to heaven and this one is going to hell. Because that would be to assume that we can penetrate their intentions, which we can't. Again, that's usurping or overstepping our, our role. That's for our Lord to do, right? And I believe that's what's called the internal forum, uh, the inner machinations of our soul and mind. That's the internal forum. And that is between each individual and God. That's his domain. However, we can judge in the external forum because that's the domain that we're all functioning in and can perceive relatively clearly. So, if someone commits the mortal sin of murder, for example, we can look at that and we can't actually say, therefore that person is judged, or we can't give the final moral judgment on what that person has done internally, right? We can't judge their soul. But... That doesn't mean, oh, we look at it and go, well, who are we to judge? You're standing there, I saw you put the knife in, I saw you take it out, I saw the person drop to the floor, but who, who am I to say you committed the murder, right? But no, we can judge people's actions when we perceive them uh, to do right or wrong, right? If we see someone do something charitable, we can say that is a good action. If we see someone do something um, horrendously sinful, we can say that's a sinful action or it's a bad action. So in that sense, we can judge and obviously we need to keep each other in, in check that way we couldn't have a functional society unless we um valued or punished different courses of action and spoke of them in that way um and, you know canon law has, has to operate on that pr principle as well the laws of the church do but that's where you know paradoxical thinking comes in we're told not to judge yet we can judge well, this actually helps us understand that we can judge in the external forum. We can judge people's actions and their behaviours. We cannot judge in the internal forum. We cannot judge a man's soul. So he continues. Some judge rashly 
not from harshness, but from pride, imagining, but, imagining that by how much they lower the honour of others, by so much they increase their own. Arrogant and presumptuous spirits who admire themselves and place themselves so high in their own esteem that they look upon everyone else as mean and inferior. I am not as the rest of men, said the foolish Pharisee. I'm not going to spend too much time on this again because I know that we've spoken about the topic of spiritual pride in previous sessions and it's incredibly important. Um, it's one of the biggest wedges that evil can drive into us when we start thinking we're more moral and better than other people. Um, and this is just another way of explaining that. He's saying that sometimes we judge people, not so much to be harsh, but because the more that we belittle them, even in our own perspective, then that inflates ourselves in relative respect. This is another piece of wisdom about pride. He says, They who drink the juice of the Ethiopian herb, Ophusia, imagine that they see everywhere serpents and dreadful things. And they who have swallowed pride, envy, ambition and hatred, see nothing that they do not find, which is, see nothing that they do not find evil and blameworthy. All right, so everyone, anyone who is really prideful, envious and ambitious, sees everything as being evil and blameworthy in some way. And that's what is drawn out by what they see. Again, we've spoken about this, but want to just re-emphasize that idea of pride is a miserable state of life, right? Which is ironic because the prideful person thinks that it is a way of making them better and making their lives better by falsely inflating their own sense of self-worth and that kind of thing. But it's not, it's actually awful. Because again, that idea of humility making everyone else into giants and, and pride making everyone else into flies. You see the world around you, it makes you see the world around you as something completely contemptible um, and not worth your time and company, right? Whereas again, the flip side of that is if you cultivate humility, then in relative respect, you start to see the beauty and the value of everything else much more than you might have done before. Um, again, if you see reality clearly, you'll see that there's an intermingling, right? Some things really are awful in this fallen world we live in. Many things, actually. Many, many things are good as well. Um, but pride certainly has a corrupting effect on our appreciation of things, for sure. So now he's kind of blending these two topics together. We must always do the same, Father Fea, judging in favour of our neighbour as far as is possible. And if it were possible for an action to have a hundred different aspects, we should look at it in, the, in that aspect which is most favourable. We should look at it in the aspect which is the most favourable. Our Lady was with child, and Saint Joseph clearly perceived it. 
But because, on the other hand, he saw all holy, all, he saw um, he saw her all holy, all pure, and all angelic, he could never believe that she was with child contrary to her duty. Right? She made that vow, and he saw that because she was moral, she wouldn't have broken it. So that he resolved by leaving by leaving her to leave the judgment thereof to God. And though the evidence was strong to lead him to conceive a bad opinion of this virgin, yet he would not judge her by it. So again, going on that same principle, we should not be quick and rash to judge. And if we're going to, always err on the side of charity, always err on the assumption that people have good intentions, or at least just poorly informed ones. Now, the main thought that came to mind is that it's especially to do, I don't know if it was like, you know, I don't know whether we live in the worst time in history. <laughs> um, and certainly, like, from a personal level, things could be way worse. Um, but looking at things globally, things are pretty bad. But probably worse in history at some points, right? Not sure if I would want to live in, like, pagan Egypt, for example. Um, but the main thing that comes to mind is, you know, when we're interacting with people, Many, many people uh, deceive, obfuscate, lie, uh, you name it, right? So I wouldn't be surprised if we take St. Francis's, Francis's advice as difficult advice, right? Uh, on the side of charity, try and assume good assumptions. Um, when it comes to judging people. But if it is difficult advice, maybe it's just a bitter piece of medicine to swallow, you know. And he goes on to say, when we cannot excuse the skin when we cannot excuse the sin, at all events let us make it worthy of compassion by attributing to it the most extenuating cause which it can have, such as ignorance or infirmity. Right? So yeah. Um, again, in the external forum, when people do horrific things, you, sometimes you can't excuse it, right? It wouldn't be, it simply wouldn't be just to excuse sins. Um, uh, if a paedophile on a blind rage kidnaps, rapes and murders five children, right? He's caught doing so. It's not excusable in the external forum, right? Um, but even then, St. Francis is pushing that and saying, okay, the paedophile example is, is a difficult one because it's the most extreme, right? Even then, he might recommend that we look at that person and say, well, it's just some degree it's ignorance or infirmity. Technically speaking, that's actually true as well. Um,
even in the case where you would catch someone doing that, retribution should be like that, right? Again, in the external forum. Um, if someone is about to kill someone innocent, the idea of you justly killing them immediately before they do that, I think that's morally sound. But when it comes to what's going on with the person's soul, the thing, the thing that's coming to mind now is this idea that evil is actually very stupid. It's very stupid to be evil. And so in some way, it's very ignorant to be evil. Just think about it, right? God is God. All-powerful, almighty, eternal, um, omniscient. And is the absolute ruler and decider of all reality and judgment, right? You cannot live against his will, ultimately. Um, fundamentally, you cannot live against the order that he has ordained, even if you wanted to. No one can. No being can, including Satan. Um, so as the theology goes, from what I understand, the idea of what Satan is doing, because he's supposed to be basically one of the smartest things that God ever made, um, is he's trying to take the, as much of reality down with him because he knows what's going to happen. But many people are not in that situation. Um, many people still think that they can live against God in some way or reject him or um, live outside of what he ordains. But again, that's a very stupid conclusion. That cannot be the case. Um, And so the moment you admit that God exists, the idea that you would basically choose the losing team is insane, really. Then it might lead you to conclude that, okay, well, if someone is insane in that way, might not look it in the way that we usually understand it, but if someone is not sane in that way or simply doesn't understand that God exists or uh, that truth has eluded them for whatever reason that's an unfortunate state to be in okay so that's one reason an overall reason to consider why anyone who is committing evil is unfortunate and deserves that consideration if we're being charitable but again i think you can if someone's a, a, you're a policeman and you're catching a thief, you can have that thought in your mind whilst you're putting the thief in jail. Because it's happening on two levels, right? On the one hand, you have sympathy for the corruption or confusion of that man's soul. On the second level, you do what is just to the community that you're living in, right? And try and keep uh, justice in order. Yeah, I think that's about all I need to say. Uh, okay, so he actually goes on to clarify some of what's been said so far. So now he says, It is not therefore wrong to doubt our neighbour. No, for we are not forbidden to doubt, but to judge. Nevertheless, we are not allowed either to doubt or to suspect others, except just as so far as the reasons and the evidence furnish grounds for doubting. Otherwise, the doubts and suspicions are rash. Okay. Now, one of the things I would say now, speaking about this, is judging in the external 
and the internal forum. He said he's made a distinction here between doubting and judging. Again, it might just be a matter of semantics now. Um, it's not wrong to doubt. It's not wrong to suspect less than perfection of someone. Right. Um, and again, it's not wrong to conclude that someone has done wrong. You see them doing it or done a wrong action. OK, but this latter section where he says. We are not allowed to either to doubt or to, or to suspect, or you could say judge in the external forum, except just as so far as the reasons and evidence furnish grounds for doubting. Otherwise, the doubts and suspicions are rash. And that's very clear, right? I think that's common sense for most people. Yeah, if we are going to doubt and if we are going to make those kinds of judgments, you have to have some reason and evidence first. It's completely unjustified otherwise. You can't just go throwing out judgments and accusations left, right and centre when there's nothing clearly to base them on. Um, and the more confidence you're going to have in your doubt or your suspicion, the more reason and evidence you're going to need. Okay. Even though a man may have been vicious for a long time, yet we run the risk of lying when we call him vicious. Simon the leper called Magdalene, Mary Magdalene, a sinner because she had been one not long before. Nevertheless, he did not speak the truth, for she was no longer a sinner, but a very holy penitent. And therefore, our Lord spoke on her behalf. Again, ties in the same topic. You're going to call someone a sinner. Are you going to call someone damned? Are you going to call someone evil? Right. Even if they did something that seems to prove to you beyond a doubt that they're in that state. One hour ago. Something can change in that time. Right. The most virile horrible person you know could change their heart upon their deathbed right um and walk amongst the angels at some point we don't know and so we leave that to god so he's talking about this uh, this other topic which it blends into right so if we're talking about judgment, rash judgment, he talks about this thing called detraction, which is basically slandering or um, damaging someone's status and reputation or their character, right? So, like, you're detracting from Mary Madeline if you just say that she's a sinner. Um, but he goes on to say, we must not, under colour of avoiding the vice of detraction, favour, flatter or encourage the other vices. We must plainly and frankly speak ill of evil and blame things that are blameworthy. By acting thus, we glorify God, provided that we observe the following conditions. That we may be justified in blaming the vices of others 
it must be necessary to do so for the profit either of the person of whom we speak or those to whom we speak. Okay, this goes into something a little bit that I was speaking about last session, right? This idea of scoffing or speaking ill of someone even to their face and how that has different, um, there's a difference between scoffing and outright naming someone's faults, right? So again, it's one thing to go behind someone's back and spread the rumour that they're a complete waste of space. But if you catch someone lying and you say to their face, you are lying, right? That's not slander. That's not scoffing. That's outright calling evil for what it is. And again, that can either be to name that evil so the person can recognise it and they recognise that other people have seen it as well. Um, or for the people who might be influenced by them, right? If someone is lying and they've got five or ten people like attentively listening to them, you tell those people that person is lying. That is to serve good and truth, right? Um, and obviously this fits into the subject of, of heresy and how the church has dealt with this in the past. If you were going to assume that not detracting and not scoffing will just be a case of being as nice to people as possible. The church has never reacted in that way. Um, even if you go back to, I think it's Ignatius of Loyola when he does against, I think he's the one who did against heresies, right? Um, he calls the deceivers who he's arguing against, he, he names them for what they are. Like he calls them, uh, I think he calls them like idiots and, uh, deceivers and magicians and all that kind of stuff right because they are they've proven themselves to be and that's why he does it likewise if you read any number of um encyclicals against you know like the protestants or the muslim faith and that kind of stuff um the popes have not pulled punches when they've named heretics and heresies for what they are so on the one hand, we need to name evil for what it is, but then we have to make a balance between, well, not balance, but we have to be careful to distinguish between doing that and judging rashly. So continuing, it is true that we may speak freely of infamous public and notorious sinners, provided, provided that it be done with a spirit of charity and compassion, and not with arrogance and presumption, nor to take pleasure in the evil of others, nor to take pleasure in the evil of others, for this is the mark of a mean and base spirit. I accept altogether the declared, the declared enemies of God and of his church. For these we must decry as much as we can, such as all the heretical and schismatic sects and their leaders. It is charity to cry out wolf when the wolf is among the sheep, and indeed wherever he may be. Okay extremely important we should not rashly 
slander or defame people. But it is absolutely our duty to name deceivers where we find them and to call a wolf a wolf. And this again is for the people that the wolf might otherwise eat or deceive or lead astray. Um, and for the wolf himself, right? It's, in many ways, I think it's becoming more and more difficult for the modern mind to understand because we're so hung up on this idea of niceness. But when, for example, the Catholic Church says that Islam is a demonic sect, it does not mean that it hates Muslims. Think about it. Christ said that we need to love our enemies, right? But that does not mean to consider the evil of our enemies as good, right? So what does love mean? Right, let's go back to that again. Love is wanting and willing what is best for someone. If Islam is false, and if Catholicism is true, and if humans find salvation through the Catholic Church and lose it in other religions, then it is actually hateful towards Muslims to pretend that their religion is true and good, right? In fact, if you love them, you want them to become Catholic, right? So that's the idea. And you do them, you, you serve the truth if you tell them your religion is false. Of course, you want to take care to explain why that's the case. You want to do it with patience. You don't necessarily want to just insult the person right out the gate. But when it fundamentally comes down to it, if, 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 is, if Islam is false, you do the Muslim no favours by pretending that it's anything but false. If there is a wolf amongst people or a heretic which is deceiving people, you do neither that person nor the people around them any favours by pretending that that is anything less than evil. So again, it's a matter of moral discernment, how we read these situations, right? We should not slander. We should give, give as much charity as possible to our interpretations and judgments of people. But at the same time, if we see someone sinning and know that that is going to, especially if we know that's going to cause problems for others, we should name it and deal with it as a matter of duty. And again, we can do that whilst leaving the judgment of that person's soul to our Lord Jesus Christ. So going from that, St. Francis now tempers the topic again a little bit. He says, when you hear a person spoken ill of, Throw doubt upon that accusation. If you can do so justly, if you can do so justly, sorry. If you cannot do this, if you cannot throw doubt on the accusation, make an excuse for the intention of him that is accused. And if that cannot be done, show compassion for him. Change the subject, calling to mind yourself and reminding the company that those who do not fall owe it entirely to God. You know, it's just sound advice. It's a way of reining in judgment and the perception of evil. 
without contempt. I think is the aim of the game. To recognise that your enemy does evil, but to continue to love him. And to err on the side of charity. And don't forget, you're not perfect yourself. None of us are. Okay. Now he's going on to a broader topic of speech in general. Now, if he was talking about speaking or judging of other people before, he's now more. This is the broader topic of, of speech in general. Let your speech be gentle, frank, sincere, straightforward, candid, and faithful. Beware of duplicity, artifice, and dissimulation. For though it is not good always to say the whole truth, yet it is never lawful to say what is contrary to the truth. So again, I think that kind of speaks for itself. Uh, let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Be straight with people and don't try to deceive. Now, again, raises another difficult moral problem. What if the man comes to your house? with a load of guns and says, whereas your children, I would like to kill them, right? Now, what someone might say is that, well, you don't actually technically have to lie in that case, right? Because you could simply say, I don't have to answer that question, right? But let's be real, because if you were actually in that situation, refusing to answer would be taken as assent, right? It would mean yes, but I just don't want to say. Many people can take it that way. Um, if you have ever been in that situation before, you know that's how it's handled, right? So that doesn't actually solve the problem. By saying, I'm not going to tell you, you've basically said yes. Um, and again, if your care, for example, as a Catholic father is first, first and foremost the care and um, health of your family, then arguably you're not doing your Christian duty, right? So just consider it this way. We just looked at this chapter on defaming people, and he basically, in most of this chapter, it makes a real point of never defame someone, never um, detract from them. Then, at the end, he says, unless they're heretics, or unless you need to name evil for what it is. So on the face of it, it looks like he says, don't detract, don't defame, but there are times when you should, right? Possibly a similar approach to deception. Another way to think about it is, you know, Sun Tzu obviously wrote The Art of War. And I think it's like one of the very first statements he makes about it. The art of war is deception, right? You cannot but be duplicitous and indirect in war, right? That's, that's how it works. What do you think a flanking maneuver is? And so you'd have to ask, well, if warfare is justified in some cases, right, like the Crusades, but lying is always wrong or deception is always wrong, 
how can you conduct warfare but not have any deception, right? You see how the things become complicated. I think it's a simple case of just applying general um, common sense, right? We're obviously talking about extreme circumstances. Then maybe save that for the extreme circumstances. In most other cases where you're just trying to operate as a decent, reliable, honourable human being, then don't lie to people. Okay, so he's just gone on to clarify basically that entire discussion. So he says, Although we may sometimes discreetly and prudently disguise and cover the truth. So although we may sometimes discreetly and prudently disguise and cover the truth by some artifice of speech. Yet we should only do so in a matter of importance, when the glory and service of God manifestly requires it. In other cases, artifices are dangerous. For, as Holy Scripture says, the Holy Spirit will not abide in a deceitful and double-faced soul. Right? You can have a man who has an honest soul, who generally lives his life, ultimately lives his life in an honourable and forthright way. But there may well be times when that man has to cover and conceal the truth because prudence requires it. Right? And again, we can imagine extreme situations like those of warfare being one of those. Now he moves on to a different topic. He says, It seems to me that we should avoid the two extremes. For to be too reserved and severe, refusing the contribution refusing to contribute to the familiar talks which take place in social intercourse, we seem to show either lack of confidence or some sort of contempt, whilst to be always talking and chattering without giving others either leisure or opportunities to speak, when they would, savours of shallowness and levity. Um, so just a bit of kind of character advice there. Um, it's not a good idea to be always just, if you're at a dinner table, just to completely lock yourself off and be completely reserved and severe and serious about everything um, because you're refusing to contribute. At the same time, people can contribute too much, right? Um, if you just keep on talking and talking and talking and don't allow the person you're speaking to to actually speak, um, that has a shallowness to it. That's easier to comment on, I think, because I find that's more of a striking example. It's usually not as hard to get people to speak when you kind of want them to, or when it would be nice for them to. Sometimes you do come across people who speak too much. And there is something quite solipsistic about it. Um, sometimes people are just very enthusiastic. And again, you can tell this by the situation, but sometimes you can talk to someone and they just keep on talking. And it's almost like you you actually don't exist. You're just something for them to talk at. Um, anyway. I love the topic again, but a very useful and practical bit of advice. 
It is necessary sometimes to refresh our spirit and our body also by some kind of recreation. Take some time off, you do need it. But that's not an excuse for sloth. It gives a nice little um, illustration here. Speaking of a um, Saint John and a hunter. All right. Saint John said to the hunter, why dost thou not always carry thy bow stretched? For fear, replied the hunter, lest being always stretched, it should lose its power of resilience, which is essential to its usefulness. Do not be astonished then, replied the apostle, if I sometimes relax the application and attention of my spirit to take a little recreation in order to apply myself afterwards more earnestly to contemplate. All right, see how you might frame a dichotomy between working and resting. But if we perceive it clearly, there's actually a, a dynamism between the two. They actually help each other. Yes, if you rest too much, you're slothful and you forego your work. But, so in that sense, it's, it's usually more prudent to emphasise working hard. Because it's kind of easier for people just to slack off, right? It's more like our natural inclination. But once you get a real taste for working and working a lot, a contrary danger comes into play, which is you basically burn yourself out, right? And you therefore corrode your own ability to work well. Um, oh, this principle applies to so much, to so many different facets of life. Um, for example, when I did my own uh, brief stint of martial arts training, the idea was very clearly, if you want to punch as hard as possible, um, as many of your muscles need to be relaxed as can be, as they can be. So that all of your focus and attention basically goes into the thing that you're striking with. Um, all of the force, basically. And in general, you want to be relaxed in a fight because the more tense you are, the more you basically burn out your stamina, right? If you're really tense, you burn out all of your muscles more quickly than the guy who isn't. So it's better for you to remain relaxed. Also makes you more supple, means you can take impact more. Um, when you're thinking, like I've had this similar experience with trying to write like um, essays and stuff. If you're like really, really forcing yourself to like try and think of something, it's actually harder sometimes than if you kind of take a minute to go walk around the kitchen or something, make yourself a cup of tea. You relax, right? You're relaxing the mind. And then the thought pops up. Right? I'm sure many of you have had that if you've, say, like had a brilliant thought in the shower or something, right? Same kind of thing. But now I'm kind of more broadly speaking, if you have a man who, say, just doesn't factor recreation into his schedule, he's going to be less effective overall. Because our bodies need to get that, uh, need to revitalize after we've we've done what we can. Um, so, yeah, it's important to work hard. But if you do that seven days a week, every week, months on end, you will eventually become useless, right? Because you're going to just burn yourself out. 
it will also probably make you cynical as well if you're not really enjoying things as much as you otherwise would. Um, so take the time to rest when you need it. If nothing else, think of the fact that we have the Sabbath, right? Um, that God has biblically put aside some time for rest, right? So he's factoring it in. We should do the same. So now he's talking about what kinds of games are actually appropriate to play, right? Um, okay, so games in which the success serves as a reward and recompense to skill and industry of body or of mind are recreations good in themselves and lawful. Play RPGs, play chess, uh, play some card games if you need to use your mind to, to play them properly. Uh, obviously most sports fall into this category, so like football, rugby, cricket, all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, okay. The only thing that we must guard against in excess, either in the time that we give to them or in the stakes that are played for, for if we spend too much time in the game, it is no longer recreation, but occupation, uh, sorry, sorry, I've, I've done a bad reading of this. Let me start again. The only thing that we must guard against is excess, is excess, either in the time that we give to them or in the stakes that are played for. For if we spend too much time in a game, it is no longer recreation, but occupation. It is no longer recreation, but occupation. We refresh neither our minds nor our bodies. But on the contrary, we depress and weary them. You know, in the modern day, think of someone who is a professional gamer. Right? At that point, you're not gaming as a form of recreation. It is your occupation. Gaming is the thing that you would then actually need a break from. Because that's what's draining and tiring, tiring you out. Draining your energy and tiring you out. We're not supposed to use games in that way. We're supposed to do our work whatever those duties may be, whether we're building or teaching or raising a family or whatever. And then when our duties are complete or our strength has come, is starting to wane, then we take that time to play games to restore ourselves. Now moving on to a different topic, a different kind of recreation. Dance parties. Uh, <laughs> he's going to talk about balls, right? Remember those where like all the princesses go and they wear big gowns and they meet the princes and stuff. Um, should we be so lucky to go to a ball and not have the other things that are on offer, right? In the modern day, it will be things like nightclubs and house parties and that kind of thing. Um, but even then, he says, at a ball. Everyone vies with everyone else in vanity, and vanity is so great a disposition to evil affections, and to the dangerous and reprehensible loves, that all this is easily engendered at dances. And then some, right? I mean, this is putting it very lightly, if you've ever been to a modern nightclub. Um, I would go so far as to say, avoid nightclubs altogether. I was ready to think about it. 
I know of people who go to them because it's like all of their friends are going. So again, it's that like social thing where you don't want to just be dismissive. Um, and you want to, in that sense, kind of be polite and charitable enough to your friends all want you to come out and have a drink. You know, it would be rude to say no. Um, so I get it. But overall, if you ever really did have a choice, I can't really see them being a good idea. Okay. <laughs> if on some occasion, when you cannot well excuse yourself, you must go to a ball, take care that your dancing be well-ordered. But how is it to be well-ordered? With modesty, with dignity, and with a good intention. Twerking is not a Catholic art form. That's another way of putting it. He says, imagine if our Lord, our Lady, the angels and the saints beheld you at the ball. Ah, how much did they pity you, seeing your heart taken up with so vain an amusement and occupied with such trifles. Imagine that. Imagine being at a nightclub while Jesus is watching you. Um, well, let me say, imagine getting involved in the atmosphere of a nightclub. Because I know people can go there and kind of stay to one side and just have a couple of drinks. And another reflection. Alas, while you were there, time was slipping by and death was drawing nearer. See how he mocks you and invites you to his dance in which the groans of your friends will be the music. That's a hard passage, isn't it? Let me say that again. Alas, while you were there, time was slipping by and death was drawing nearer. See how he mocks you and invites you to his dance in which the groans of your friends will be the music. Um, I have to think of all the house parties I went to when I was younger and thinking all the while death was watching over me while I was just wasting my time and so was everyone else. So now he's talking about um, conditions where it's appropriate to either play or to dance. He says, play and dance according to the conditions which I have laid down for you. When to condescend and give pleasure to the company in which you find yourself, prudence and discretion counsel you to do so. For, condescen for, for condescen condescension, sorry, for condescension being an offshoot of charity, 
makes indifferent things good and dangerous things permissible. Okay. It even takes away the harm from things which are in some wise evil, and therefore games of chance, which otherwise would be blameworthy, are not so, if sometimes right condescension lead us to take part in them. Okay, so two things. Again, that idea of, um, even for a Catholic, I can imagine times when it's appropriate to go to a house party or a nightclub or a pub or whatever. Um, pubs are probably the mildest of those three, for sure. But I think we all understand that, right? Again, use your discretion uh, and your own discernment. Um, if all of your friends invite you out to go to a house party and you know that you cannot... Um, ultimately resist all the cocaine you're going to be offered right you have to think through that um but if you know you can handle your temptation um with god's help then yeah it's a form of charity to give people your time now this thing he's saying about um games and he says even like games of chance which he you know he says if they're skillful then they're worthwhile but if they're just chance, they're, they're kind of frivolous. But even these can be used to the good. And there's an interesting example that comes to mind. I cannot remember the saint's name, but I do know for sure there was a saint who used gambling to convert people. And let me explain what I mean by that. He was living, um, I think, around the time of the Reformation, when a lot of people were being drawn over to Protestantism. And he frequented a venue in which people would play, were all becoming Protestant, and they would play cards. And it was just gambling, basically. And he basically was a, was a savant, and he learned how to card count, because he realised that none of these people would come and speak to him about the faith. But they were enthralled with this card game, right? So what he learned to do is he learned to basically count cards and became a master of this game of chance. And gambling as well, which otherwise we would be told is a, you know, it's not recommended for sure. But he actually used that. And then what he did is every time he would win against someone, they would obviously be in debt to him because of the money they put into the game. And what he would say is, look, I'm, don't worry about the money. I'll give you your money back on one condition. Just come to church and hear me preach tomorrow. And if you do that, I will give you your money back. I don't want the money. So by learning to gamble, by learning to uh, use this game, use this game of chance, that man eventually, that saint eventually um, converted a whole slew of people. Right? So he was able to use this thing that would otherwise seem, it's not exactly a sin though, right? It's, a, it's voiceful and it's an, definitely an occasion of sin, but he was still able to use that for the good. Again, this is why, in many ways, Catholicism is a very, as C.S. Lewis said, Christianity is an adult religion, it's a grown-up religion, right? We do have very clear rules in many senses. There are certain lines which are very clear-cut, okay? And we cannot, we do not just mix and change morality on our whim that has been set. At the same time, it seems very clear that God wants us to get involved with our own moral reasoning. He hasn't just encoded us with something to just follow as if we're robots. We have now a 
collection of principles. And in many cases, we have to use our own discernment, our own reasoning to figure out how those reason, how those principles apply and how we can do the most good with the cards that we're dealt. So St. Francis makes a final comment, basically about the state of virtue. What he's done is he's given a couple of examples of where saints found themselves in very sinful situations. And actually, instead of being a temptation to them, those situations amplified their virtue or strengthened them. Um, so like if they were placed in this pit and all the sin around them was trying to claw its way into them all of that temptation was trying to get its claws in instead of it winning it was almost like that attack strengthened them and made them want to push back even more made that virtue shine the brighter and he summarizes this that with this passage where he says great fires are increased by the wind but little ones are extinguished by it if they be not well protected. So of course that also brings to mind the fact that if we are trying to navigate the moral nuances of life, we might have to find ourselves in occasions of sin in order to do that. Firstly, if we have a bright enough fire, we should be able to burn away the claws of that temptation. Secondly, and probably most importantly, it cannot touch us if we have our shield, which is, of course, God and Christ, our Lord and Saviour. So, yeah, I think that'll be enough for this one. Thank you very much for your time.